What will our socialites take away from today's episode? You know, I really struggled trying to find some type of positive, some type of light at the end of the tunnel on this one, and I couldn't. This is a really dark, it's a really brutal case. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it, but I finally found something positive that I believe our socialites can take away. And if they open their minds and they choose to critically think with us, I think it's gonna be a really good episode. Welcome to Socialite Crime Club. You're invited to indulge in exceptional storytelling. Delight your insatiable desires for scandalous schemes and criminal conspiracies. Socialite Crime Club, recounting misdeeds. So I want to start this episode with introducing you to Antonio Lamar Cochran. Here's a picture of him. Okay, this looks like a big man. He's pretty good. You know, he's not that tall. I want to say he's 5'8", but he's thick. He's really okay. thick. Yeah, he um, looks like a football player. Yeah, probably could have been, probably should have been, but uh, he didn't go down that path. Antonio is a career criminal. He was born in 81, 1981. Okay. By 1999, when he turned 18, he already had a handful of felony charges on him. So in 98, he had a felony theft. In 2000, he had a theft from probation violation. Again in 2000, he had another theft. In 2001, he had this issue where he was living in like one of these halfway houses. He okay. violated a term there, so he got sent back to jail there. 2003, a failure to identify as a fugitive. He was re required to report as part of his probation, was failing to do that. In 2006, an assault with a domestic violence. 2008, a burglary. 2009, a burglary. 2011, another false information failing to report issue. 2011, he had a drug charge. 2013, he had a trespass. You get the picture. Yes, and do we know how much time he actually served between these years of crime? Well, because these aren't these crazy crime of the century, right? They're pretty low level. They're felonies, but they're low level felonies. He's just constantly in and out of jail. And then mm -hmm. he'd get out of jail. He'd be on probation. He'd violate the probation. He's back in. He'd get out of jail, be back on probation, violate the probation, back in. So he's just kind of a rotating door. I'd say half and half. Half of his time is in jail. Half of his time is out of jail. Okay. But in 2014, he's going to escalate his criminal entrepreneurship, if you will. And he's going to go up to sexual assault in a drug case. Mm. This is kind of a sad case. So th the crutch of the case is he's driving his girlfriend's daughter home one day. She's 17. From school or? I don't know where he picked her up. I couldn't find those details, but he pulls over in this wooded area with her, puts a cloth over her mouth, tells her that he's going to rape her. And if she fights with him, he's going to kill her. And she submits. So he rapes her. He's pulled over on this little side road in the woods and a car passes and just thinks, that's weird. You're gonna see a reoccurring theme on today's episode where somebody sees something and they think, hmm, that's weird. Mm -hmm. But they really don't do anything. In this particular case, they did call 911. They reported a suspicious vehicle. They dispatched law enforcement. A few minutes later, law enforcement sees a vehicle matching the description in the area driving down the road. Okay. They make a stop and it's Antonio and the 17-year-old daughter of his girlfriend. The daughter is visibly shaking, crying. So the cop is smart enough to figure out something's not right here, pulls her out of the car, and she explains to the officer, I was just raped by this man. He threatened to kill me, and it was a brutal rape. They end up arresting him. They find drugs in the car, going to trial now mm -hmm. as a sexual assault and this homicide. The jury trial actually happens January, if I remember correctly, 2015. Okay. Jury comes back not guilty. 
Why? Because there were some holes, apparently, in her testimony that they didn't feel she was a credible witness. Did they ever do a rape kit? It doesn't appear. There's no evidence outside of he said, she said. Now, we are in Texarkana. Bowie County is the county, to, but Texarkana, Texas, not on the Arkansas side, but the Texas side. It looked like the investigation overall was really lacking, significantly lacking. In what ways? Well, number one, I can't find very much information. It was a three-day jury trial. And I can tell you, historically speaking, when we're talking about a sexual assault, it's never three days. It's a week, if not longer. Mm -hmm. There's no information about a sex assault exam. There's no information about any attempts to corroborate this information beyond her testimony. It sounds like one of these cases where it was a he said, she said, and the jury sided with him. Was there anything with her mother testifying in any way of maybe abuse that he did to her or that she wouldn't trust him in some way? No, there doesn't appear to be anything prior other than this incident, but it's a pretty egregious incident. Obviously, she's going to break it off with him. And for whatever reason, he decides, eh, maybe I should leave Texarkana. And he moves jury- to Dallas. And the jury just didn't believe her testimony, the 17-year-olds. At the end of the day, the jury doesn't believe her. Oh, this is horrible. Oh, we haven't got to horrible yet. Okay. So Antonio's going to move to, to Dallas. Gets a job at Hooters. Oh, doing He's what? A cook. He's a cook. He's not a waitress, if that's what you were thinking. <laughs> okay, I'm struggling with this already. Go ahead. Yeah, so he gets a job at Hooters, and he's working there as a cook for a while, but by the time we get to the incident we're going to talk about, he is no longer employed at Hooters. But that appears to be the only job he had while he was in Dallas. Do we know how long he was able to retain employment? He moved to Dallas in August. Our incident's going to happen in mid-October, so maybe a, a month or two, month okay. and a half. Okay. So that's Antonio. Okay. Now let me introduce you to Zoe. Oh, she looks like a sweet little girl. Zoe is a sweet little girl. Zoe Hastings, she has four siblings. She is the oldest of her four siblings. She had just graduated in May of 2015. She went to the Booker T. Washington School for the Arts. She was very much a theater kid. You know how those theater kids are. I do know those theater kids. I have a couple, actually. (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) So, yeah, she graduates in May of 2015, and she is extremely devout to her religion. And she decides after high school she wants to go on a mission. That's her calling, and she's extremely dedicated dedicated to this. So she's preparing to go on a mission. On October 11th of 2015, so we're talking four or five months after she's graduated, she's going to these weekly meetings that prepare her for her mission. So it's a Sunday on October 11th. She goes to church in the morning, comes home after church. She's hanging out at the house. She's got a five o'clock meeting it back at the church for this mission preparation class. Okay. And she decides to head back a little bit early because they had rented a Redbox movie. Okay. So on her way back to the church, she's going to swing by a Walgreens, drop off the Redbox, and then head to this meeting. So for any foreign listeners that aren't American, Redbox is this big red box actually that they put outside of grocery stores or pharmacies and you can rent a movie it's a dvd a dvd kiosk and you rent it out of the box and then you go drop it back off yeah it's all automated you just put your credit card in it charges you two or three four bucks and you get this movie that just dispenses like a can of soda yes and then you have to return them or you get late fees and she is returning she's being a good citizen and she's returning her red box a couple things i want people to take away as we start to build up for this crime This red box dispenser at the Walgreens, it's almost within view of her house. She lives in Dallas. She does not live in a terrible neighborhood. It's not the greatest neighborhood, but it's not a terrible neighborhood. Okay. And she is well within a mile of her house. Like I said, you move a couple houses and a couple trees, you could see this red box machine from her house. So she drops this off at about 4.40 p.m. 
She's driving the family van, which is a Honda Odyssey. Didn't you have a Honda Odyssey? I did used to have a Honda Odyssey. It yeah. was my first family van. Yeah, so she's driving the family van, and when she goes to get back in the van, there is a male that approaches her. So she's about halfway in the driver's door, getting ready to sit down in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. When this male comes up from behind the van, she never sees him. Grabs the door, somewhat pushes. They have a little brief conversation, it appears, and I'll get into how we know that. Kind of pushes her to the passenger seat. He gets in the driver's seat, and he drives away. Mm. Now, the part that's going to resonate here, there's two witnesses who see this. In the parking lot? One in the parking lot, one across the street. The one in the parking lot is a tattoo artist whose tattoo shop is just across the street a little ways down and he's walking to the Walgreens to get like a pop or soda or something. He sees this and he thinks in his head, that doesn't seem right, but he doesn't interact. He doesn't get involved. Across the street, there's actually a homeless individual who also sees this, who thinks uh, something's wrong. Just the mannerisms, the, the body language didn't seem right to him either. Problem is he's got a warrant, so he's afraid to call 911 because he's worried at the end of the day he's just going to go to jail. Oh. And although both of these witnesses are severely disturbed by what they see, they don't act on it. I've seen some interviews from the tattoo artist, and I think to this day this case probably haunts him because I think he realizes the impact he could have made. So the van's going to disappear, drives out of the parking lot. Later that evening, Zoe hasn't come home yet. Her parents are realizing the meeting's over. She should be on her way home. They're calling. They're texting her. They're not getting any responses at all. They start to get worried. Very, very unlike Zoe. Zoe is typically, if she tells you she's going to be at five, she pulls in at 4.55, right? Like, she's very She's a good girl. Prudent. She's a great girl. And they realize by about 9, 30, 10 o'clock, something's wrong. So they start... Okay, let's report her as a missing person. They're getting all that going. They've already called all their friends. Yeah, and this is 2015, but mom gets on the phone and realizes, hey, she has some different apps on her phone. I know all of her passwords. I know who, what app she uses. And mom gets creative and starts trying to track the phone. And mom's actually going to figure out where the phone's at. Okay. And they realize, that's really weird. It's hitting like in this creek bottom, maybe two miles, two and a half miles from the house. So they jump in the car, her and dad, and they drive to this area and of course when they get there it's completely roped off there's police everywhere they get out they contact a police officer who immediately figures out who they are and stops them and he actually tells the dad do not go down there you do not want to see what's happening here what they didn't realize is a couple hours earlier there was a man out walking his dogs who saw a, a speed limit sign that looked like somebody had run it over and then tracks kind of going off into the woods into this little ravine like a little wash. So he goes down there and he finds this wrecked van, which is the family minivan. And then he sees Zoe, who's outside of the van, maybe 20, 30 feet outside of the van. I'm not going to get into the details on this case. It was brutal. It was very obvious she was dead, that she was killed in a very violent manner, and that she had been sexually assaulted. He is completely beside himself, comes out of the woods, sees another person walking down the street, because it's just a regular neighborhood, waves that person down, tells that person what's going on. Mm -hmm. The first person doesn't have a phone, the second person does. Second person runs down in the ravine, sees the same thing, is like, oh my God, and calls 911. So law enforcement shows up, so they're actively working an obvious murder scene. Now, what time show. did people actually start finding her? When was the what time was the first person able to come across her? If I remember correctly, and I could be off on this, I want to say it was about six, between six and seven, maybe as late as seven at the latest. PM? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And at that point, we know she's abducted around four forty-five. So this is a couple hours after her abduction. So the parents are realizing, and of course, they get the worst news in the world. This is a homicide scene. And it's what so time did her parents actually arrive on scene? Just after 10 p.m. Okay. So 
law enforcement's already been working the scene for two or three hours, which isn't anything. Like they're, you're just getting started with a scene like this. They'll be working it all night. So that time delay doesn't really mean anything mm-hmm. necessarily. So the investigation, as they start to get in there, it appears that the minivan was wrecked. They drove off the road into this ravine. They hit a sign on the way out. So something happened in the minivan. I have to believe that Zoe was either fighting at this point or realized what was going on and was trying to escape. And it caused this accident. She is outside the van, so in quite a ways. So it appears that maybe during this accident, she gets out of the van. Maybe she was trying to run or get away. And it appears that maybe he ends up catching up to her before she can actually get away. So like I said, she's about 20 or 30 feet lying outside of the van. She has severe trauma to her neck area, which is obviously inflicted by a knife. They find a knife at the scene and it's a bloody pocket knife, not too far from the body. Okay. Her clothes are very disheveled. It is obvious, anybody who came across the scene, that, okay, this is probably sexually motivated or motivated. Absolutely. So obviously they're going to process the scene, process the body. She's going to have an autopsy. Part of that autopsy is going to include the sexual assault exam. And they're going to find two different semen samples from the autopsy. Okay. Both of them are not a big enough sample to get a full DNA profile. We get what's called YSTR. And if you've never heard of YSTR, this is a partial profile from a male sample of DNA, but there's enough of the sample that we can tell family lineage. And what I mean by family lineage, you can't say that that sample 100% comes from me, but you can say it's either mine or some other male in my genetic tree. So that's YSTR. However, the knife also has DNA on it. It's got Zoe's from the blood that's on the knife, but then it also has an unknown male profile. And that is a full profile. It's not like the YSTR. So we have two YSTR samples, which is a partial profile male lineage only. And then we have one full male profile. The YSTR belongs to the same family tree as the male that's identified on the knife. Makes yes. sense? Okay. Mm-hmm. As they start to run through all this evidence, they put it into the DNA database and they immediately get a hit on Antonio. Oh. Because of all of his past criminal issues, he's had to submit DNA to this database. And does Antonio have any family members, male specifically, in the Dallas area? No. It hits on his DNA. Okay. Like it's somebody in his family tree. But the knife had a full profile. The The DNA on the knife is his. Okay. Now, granted, it's touch DNA. And touch DNA is, is difficult. Just because we have touch DNA does not mean you committed a crime. Everywhere you go that you touch, you leave little oils, your DNA is actually in those oils. So mm-hmm. I could go to a restaurant, hold on to a glass, and I'm leaving my DNA on that glass. Well, just because that glass ends up in somebody's house later that night for whatever reasons, right. doesn't mean I was at the house. That's touch DNA. Right. So it's, well, it's also one of the reasons why whenever any officer goes to a crime scene, you create a crime scene log so that we have a full log of everybody that was at that crime scene like at the time of the investigation so that when their DNA is found there, we right. know what time they arrived and what time they left. Right, and I will be the first one to say, it is problematic trying to convict somebody on touch DNA alone. You need other evidence to help combine that because there are reasons that my DNA could be somewhere that I've never been because something that I touched has passed three or four other hands and ended up somewhere. But when we start to look at touch DNA that's found on a knife very close to the body and then his YSTR DNA also on the body, it starts From to paint a little bit of a different picture. Correct. Sure. They also start looking at Antonio's social media posts. And there's some text messages that he's sending that something happens that afternoon and he's asking people for help. So the text messages shows this stressful event that happens right around the same time and that he needs help. There's also somebody he refers to as Mimi, which I 
found a lot of reports that it's his mom had died that day, but it's not his mom because I tracked her down. She doesn't die until a few years later. So maybe a grandma that he calls Mimi, but somebody in his life died that day and he's really struggling and he's asking people for help because he's struggling over this, this recent Was death. this prior to our victim being abducted? The same day, but yes, both the text messages are happening before and after. So there's some things that are going on that clearly he's struggling with some, some type of issue at that point. Okay. Then we get into the phone records and the phone records paint a pretty clear picture. We can see him leaving his apartment. He is in the immediate area of the Walgreens about 4, 4.20. He stays there until 4.45, at which point the phone moves to the area that the van is found later on with the crime scene. You can actually see when we map Zoe's phone records, the two phones coming together at the Walgreens and then moving to the crime scene. Shortly after this, we see one of the phones, Antonio's, slowly start to make its way back to the Walgreens. He's walking. Did he have a vehicle at the Walgreens? At the Walgreens. There's also a witness who reports seeing somebody very similar to Antonio's description walking to the Walgreens around that time. And it was in a direction that would be coming from the crime scene. So you're starting to get a lot of this other circumstantial evidence that's painting a pretty clear picture. So was there any video evidence at the Walgreens that showed his vehicle arriving there and leaving there? No. Unfortunately, there's no video on this side by the red box, so we're not going to get video. Okay. But everything else paints a pretty clear picture. This is Antonio. There's no doubt about that. Sure. They're going to end up indicting him. They're going to go to trial. It's a death penalty case because of the, the nature of the crime. And when I say brutal, and I just don't want to get into the details on this case, this poor girl was absolutely brutally raped and killed in the worst possible ways. Mm -hmm. So it resonates, I think, with the investigators and the prosecutor when they first discover just how brutal this crime was. This is a death penalty case. This person needs to go away forever. He poses such a threat to humanity. Go away. Yes. However, Antonio has some mental health issues, mm. which is kind of an oxymoron if you think about it. Of course you have mental issues. The average person does not kidnap 18-year-old girls from a red box, take them down the street, and brutally sexually assault them and murder them. So I would say if right. that's going to be the, the baseline of how we mm -hmm. make these decisions, every suspect we encounter is mentally And impaired. how old did we say Antonio was? At this time, I want to say he's in his 30s. 34, okay. I think. Yeah. You yeah. have to be somewhat mentally impaired to commit a crime such like this. Normal, right. common sense thinking people don't commit crimes like this. Right. They respect women. They yes. offer them a, some leeway when the woman says no. Right. right? So yeah. because of that, the death penalty is going to get taken off the table. So the charge now is murder. And the second piece of this murder is the kidnapping. And it's really important, we've talked about it before, we're gonna come full circle and we're gonna talk about capital murder. Mm -hmm. In Texas, and don't get me wrong, Texas kills more people than anybody. So when you're escaping the death penalty in Texas, you, you've, you've got some things going you've on. You've got the ace in the hand there, right? Mm -hmm. So what they need to prove for capital murder is both the kidnapping and the murder. And the difference at this point, because they've taken the death penalty off the table, capital murder, you go to prison the rest of your life with no chance of parole. You will never get out of prison. You will die in prison. Okay. If they don't make the capital murder case and they just get a, a regular murder charge, it's life in prison with the possibility of parole. And we've talked about this on a number yes. of different episodes. In order to make capital murder, they have to prove the murder and the kidnapping. So they go to trial. It's a jury trial. They have both of the witnesses, the tattoo person and the homeless person, provide testimony of what they saw during the abduction. And they both saw something a little bit different, which is very common. Mm -hmm. Out of the 12 jurors, there is one juror who is not confident that Zoe went against her will. 
So they couldn't charge on kidnapping. On kidnapping. (gasps) There was one juror who was holding out. And basically that juror stuck a flag in the sand and said, nope, I have not seen any evidence that she went against her will. Who was this juror? Oh, God, that's the problem with the criminal justice system. You don't tar and feather them afterwards. But at the end of the day, you've got 11 people who are absolutely convinced, and you have one that just will not go. We've seen other cases like this. We have. The other 11, and I have to kind of applaud them on this, the other 11 really start to do some critical thinking. They can stick to their guns, and this will result in a mistrial because the jury is hung, and it will cause a new trial. Everybody in the courtroom was crying when Zoe's dad testified. Like, you can't you can't talk about this guy without getting emotionally charged. I have seen his testimony um, on oh. YouTube, and it is heart-wrenching. Yeah, it is. It will screw you up. So the jury is in the jury room, and we can convict him on the murder, because everybody in the room agreed to the murder. It was the kidnapping. We can convict him on the murder, and this will give him a life with the possibility of parole. Or we can stick all stick to our guns, it'll be a hung jury, and we have to put the family back through this. My question is, I need to backpedal a little bit here. What would potentially make a juror think or believe that she wasn't abducted or kidnapped? They didn't see her fighting. They didn't hear her scream. And we're gonna talk about this a lot here in a minute. But based on the very limited things that they saw at that time, it appears that this person talks to her She moves over to the passenger seat, he gets into the driver's seat, and they just drive off. It's the assumption that because they didn't see things of complete panic and chaos, it can only mean one thing, which unfortunately just isn't true. So they just presumed that she could have potentially... One person. So one person presumed that she just left consensually with this man. Correct. Because that one person, in order for that one person to get behind this, they want Zoe screaming and fighting for her life at that moment. And they just came from the planet Zerg and ended up on a jury in the United States? (laughs) Happens every day. It does, unfortunately. The jury's going to make what I believe is a wise decision. We cannot put this family back through another trial. So they convict him on the murder. He's acquitted on the kidnapping. So he gets life in prison with the possibility of parole. He doesn't get capital murder. Uh, does not get capital murder. So he has to serve 30 years. He's not eligible for parole until he serves the 30 years. He'll be in his mid-60s when that happens. But he will be eligible for parole at some point. So has he had appeals since then? He's had two appeals. Interesting you bring that up. With most murder trials where you're sentenced to some type of life, even if it's life with a chance of parole, a lot of states it's an automatic appeal. Mm-hmm. So there's a first appeal that's questioning the touch DNA. But of course, it ignores all the other circumstantial evidence of and why STR DNA. The, the courts deny it. There's a second one that's bringing up very similar issues. It's currently being litigated. It's not going to go anywhere. Any technical issue a defense attorney can bring up, yeah, and they'll it's, do. It's really interesting. I had to take a step back because I started looking at these appeals and how they were written. There is a defense attorney out there who feels like it's a good idea to get this guy out of prison. Because, you know, when he got away with raping the 17-year-old, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And now that we absolutely know for certain that he did this to Zoe in the worst possible manner, and the similarities are very consistent. Well, it does sound very similar because he took them both into a wooded yes. area. And I think he told Zoe something very similar that he told the 17-year-old, I'm going to rape you, and if you resist, I'm going to kill you. And I think she did what she could get the hell out of the van. So I hate to bring this up, especially if someone from Zoe's family is listening, but regarding the similarities, did it appear potentially that he had also 
found Zoe's mouth like he did the 17-year-old? There was nothing, but that was early. The 17-year-old said that that was when he first, like, started the assault, not throughout the assault. Mm -hmm. With Zoe, based on what I've seen in the case and the things that I reviewed, I think Zoe got out of the van and was running when he okay. when he got her. Right. So, totally different situation. But in a wooded area, not too far off of the road, mm -hmm. in a very suspicious manner, the way that he abducts her, like, it, there's just enough that, I, I think what happened with 17-year-old is legit. Sure, it does sound like it. Yeah, so, at the end of the day, one juror changes the whole thing. I do have to throw this out. Doesn't matter. And I know some people will be like, well, hell yes, it matters. I also want to be really, really, really respectful to other victims' families that I've talked to and I've interacted with through the year. How long somebody spends in prison doesn't necessarily change that void, the trauma, how much you miss your kid. At the end mm -hmm. of the day, if your child is killed brutally like this, whether he serves 30 years, 60 years, or 1,000 years, I don't know that it fixes those issues. You know it will saying? never change the pain of what that family is going right. through. So I know a lot of people get really charged about issues like this, but at the end of the day, I don't want to lose sight of how long he spends in prison doesn't change what happened. It doesn't change the brutal nature of this crime. It doesn't change what the parents are going through, if, right. if that makes any sense. Or what his mindset is at any age. Right. Correct. So let's get into the parents a little bit. Okay. So here I am trying to do this case, and I've spared a lot of details to our listeners. I'm not going to get into how I believe she was killed. I'm not going to get into the violent nature of the rape. And that's where I was struggling. How do I make an episode out of this? I don't want to talk about all that. There's got to be something that's positive that has come out of this. And then I ran across the parents. So we're going to start with dad. Dad is Jim Hastings. He's an art teacher, elementary school art teacher. Mm -hmm. His dad died just a few months before Zoe was killed. Oh. About two years later, a little less than two years later, his mom is diagnosed with cancer. When his mom is diagnosed with cancer, she dies within six months. Oh, my god! So he loses his father, his oldest daughter of five children. He loses the oldest daughter and then his mom within about a two-year period, a little over a two-year period. <sighs> I told you I was going to clean it up and bring some light to this. Well, I'm sure his art is very beautiful in light of all the pain and suffering that he's been through. It changed him. I can imagine. So he started drawing every day. Every day, he made it a point to find something beautiful in his life or something beautiful that he's seeing and draw it. And then he posted on Instagram. Hastings 40 is his Instagram. And if you go to that, you can literally look at the last five years of his six years, I guess. Is this a self-portrait that you have up? Yes, this is a self-portrait he drew. I don't okay. know if you can read the little caption he put. I can't. My eyes are... You can't see, can you? I, I don't have my glasses Tomorrow on. will be better. Oh, my gosh. Oh, he, this is terribly sad. He does a lot of birds. You'll love it. I love birds. He is really, really good at birds. Okay. Uh, I would encourage everybody to go to his Instagram, the jhastings40 at Insta. It is really inspiring. You can literally watch his entire journey. Now the part that's really going to screw you up. Mm -hmm. When his mom got diagnosed with cancer... He drew a portrait of her every day until she died for six months, oh every single day. Oh my gosh. Because if he could have done that with his daughter. Right, right, <sighs> he's learning from that. He's also started this thing where he creates these murals all over Dallas in memory of Zoe. And they're these beautiful murals. So he's also captured that on his Instagram. But he's stated very clearly, he did an, an interview. I can't remember who the, the news media was that he did, but he did an interview about all this because everybody's super touched. When you start getting into Jim, he's, he's a really cool dude. But his whole thing was, if I didn't start making these pictures, I might stop completely. So art kind of saves him, if you will. 
Right. Mom, Cheryl, she's a labor and delivery nurse when Zoe is killed. She's working on her master's program at the time, and she was going to become a, get her master's in nursing. Okay. Shortly after Zoe was killed, the hospital was advertising that, hey, we need more sexual assault nurse examiners. So she knows what these women go through. I want people to wrap their head around this. Uh, uh. You have a daughter who was sexually assaulted and killed brutally. You're a nurse, and you find your new passion is now your sexual assault nurse examiner. What a family. Right. We had this episode a while back, uh, Gun on the Run, and I talked a little bit about the family and the family's interaction with Gun. And I got this comment. Sounds a lot like we're victim blaming. Mm. Yeah, and it bothered me. And trust me, we get a lot of nasty comments that don't bother me. This one bothered me <laughs> a little bit. So I want to point out to everybody before we start this next little section, the difference between critical thinking and victim blaming. Victim blaming is me saying, Zoe was wearing something provocative. And in her clothing choice that day, she was luring men to look at her or desire her. Sorry, this is such a sad episode. I'm like tearing up. This is terrible. Glass of whiskey. Um, yeah, the, thank you for the whiskey. My goodness. <laughs> I told you you're going to need a glass of whiskey today. Mm-hmm. So she's wearing something provocative. And then when this man approaches her, she's flirtatious. She's acting promiscuous. And then me saying that's what led to her assault. I want to make it, and I'm going over the top with that. That is victim blaming. Right. And it is absolutely inappropriate in any circumstance, and nobody should ever do it. And I'm the first one to advocate it. There's, there's no takeaway from that. There's nothing positive that will ever come from that. At the same time, the entire country should stop for a second, put themselves in Zoe's shoes, and think, is there something that would have changed this incident? And that's critical thinking. Is there something we could learn? As a parent, both of us, we have four girls. Right. God, this stuff would haunt me every day. Right. And my girls will never listen to me. If I tell them something like this one-on-one, they would never listen. Well, it's just I, dad being dad. I also think that our girls have heard us talk so negatively about things all the time. We always have this gloom and doom outlook when we send them off to school or send them to work right. or text message them. It's something about, hey, don't get sex trafficked today or some message right. that we hope that they think about while they're out, right? And I think sometimes they let it slip to the wayside. So where I want to head with this, though, is my girls won't ever listen to me because I'm dad. But if they heard it on a podcast, maybe they would. You're no longer dad. Maybe if they just heard this random podcast. So this is my attempt to take Zoe Hastings' case and to try to create some positive out of it. And if I get one damn comment about, sounds like you're victim blaming, go screw yourself, don't ever watch my show again. Let's track them down. Yeah, let's track them down. We'll find you. <laughs> Listen to what we're saying. Challenge yourself to open your mind and to have some critical thinking skills here. And that's what I want to really talk about. And maybe that's what the takeaway of this episode is, of something we can be positive about here. And I'm going to start by saying, don't be soft in your thoughts and actions. The world is a dangerous place. There is true evil out there that will hurt you, that will do horrendous things to you. And if you're one of these people that you just see the best in everything, I applaud you. But it doesn't mean you have to walk around blind, if that makes any sense. Right. Well, going back to Gun on the Run, I think we talked a little bit about that OODA loop process, right? That objectively planning and being prepared for 
anything that could come, that could come to you or harm you. Yeah, and we just touched on it for that episode. And, and that's one of the things I'm really trying to be strategic in how we roll different episodes out as we start to build on these things. So that's exactly where we're going is OODA loop. And for some people, that's probably the first time they'd heard that. OODA loop is an acronym. It's O-O-D-A. And it means observe, orient, decide, and act. Corporate America, like many things in our world, took this term, trained it, overused it, abused it, and perverted it. So now people are like, oh no, I've heard about OODA loop. Mm -hmm. I would challenge that the majority of Americans who've heard about OODA loop outside of the military world, it's because of corporate America completely perverting it. So this is our chance to disparage corporate right now. We love to disparage corporate. Oh, I love okay, it. Okay, just because your TTP 356 forms weren't turned in on time, <laughs> and now you guys have sat around for three months trying to figure out how to overcome your competition. Because you had hour and a half meetings before the big meeting. Oh no, you had the meeting to have the hour and a half meeting to have the meeting. Yeah, the meeting for the meeting to have the meeting. Yeah, you know something so about this. I do know a lot about that. Okay, if you found yourself where you're listening to this and you're like, oh no, I've heard of this. My company did it. Well, you got screwed. You got bamboozled and sucked into a process that they have perverted so far, it doesn't make sense anymore. The whole concept of OODA Loop it was actually developed by probably the world's greatest dogfighting pilot in history. And it was meant to be an instantaneous process that I can make really good decisions because I'm training my mind to make a decision. And I get so frustrated when I read things on OODA Loop and now how it's become this workshop where me and my corporate partners can sit down for three hours and work through this problem using the OODA Loop theory to figure something the out. The difference is, is that in the corporate world, you have a lot of time to think and strategize about right. something with the way that OODA loop was meant to be used, it's in a very high stress, complicated, dynamic moment that you have to make split second decisions with. But it's not a training class. Right. It is literally a lifestyle. And that's what I wanna get across today. And here's the great news, anybody can do it. Anybody is capable of it. We're taught this in the academy and I found myself doing it a lot as a young officer. And I can think back to certain really high stress incidents that I've been in and I know that it helped. Mm -hmm. I know you've done the same thing. So let's let's talk a little bit about OODA loop. Number one, my OODA loop. And when I'm saying my OODA loop, something happens, and I'm gonna use Zoe here. Something happens to Zoe. What is her mind processing when it happens? Is she in such a state of panic when he comes up to the door and kind of pushes her to the passenger seat that she just freezes? And because she froze, the witnesses don't see her screaming and fighting for her life, so they just assume that it's a consensual Piece, right. right. For her, it's actually a state of shock. It is life threatening. She is literally in fear of her life at that moment and she freezes. Nothing wrong with that. Like I would say the overwhelming majority, majority of, of women would do that. Well, and men. So how can we prepare ourselves not to do that? And this is where OODA loop comes in to a the, the entire process that we're talking here. And you visualize these things. So today, for any woman who listening to this podcast, when you go to the store, I don't care if you're going to buy broccoli. When you go to the store, be aware of your surroundings. Look at things, observe things. Start creating these scenarios in your head. If that person over there approached me in a very negative manner, or this person approached me trying to kidnap me, or this person did this over here, what would I do? Mm -hmm. How would I orient what is around me? What do I have available to me? How would I decide what to do? And then how would I act on that? And the thought process is if you're running yourself through these scenarios every day, just, and don't do it to the point that it consumes your life. There's a happy medium, <laughs> but don't ever not think about it. But if you run these little scenarios through your mind nonstop, you will start to find that, no, I would do this, I would do this, I would do this. And if you continuously do this day in and day out, you will develop this mindset that when it happens, 
it's secondary. It just it just happens. Right. And it's kind of a mindset of this internal courage that you're building as well. This confidence within yourself that you are taking better care of yourself, that you are aware of your situational surroundings on a more consistent basis. And you'll find yourself almost being in a mentally happier and safer place because you are thinking about how you take care of yourself in a tough situation. Right. And you start to feel more comfortable in yourself, by yourself, right? Right. And I want to hit something here. There are so many issues with this case. Uh, the system let us down. And I hate to break this to people, but the system is never not going to let you down. Mental health reform is never going to fix the Antonio Cockerings. It isn't. It just, it's physically They'll impossible. They'll always be out there. Yes. We cannot arrest our way. We cannot overfund our way. We cannot somehow change policies to get out of the situation. Bad shit is going to happen. There are terrible people who literally are the definition of evil who you will encounter at some point in your life. It's going to happen. So how you can respond to that is very important. But the second part of this OODA loop loop, if you will, is how other people respond to you. So you have your actions, what you can do, but how can you get into their OODA loop? Mm -hmm. You know, what are certain things? And again, I'm not victim blaming. I need people to critically think here. What are things that Zoe may have been able to say or do at that moment when he first makes contact with her that changes the situation? Not because of what she does for herself, but what she says to Antonio to get him to maybe deviate for two or three seconds. We have two witnesses. If she created a little bit of a, a hesitation there, or if she created some type of a pause, would it have changed the events that day? Right. And I don't know that I have all those answers of saying, well, she could have done this, she could have done that. This is for everybody to kind of run through this process on their own mm -hmm. and think of, well, I wonder if she could have done this. And it's that thinking process that changes this. Well, and I think there are people out there listening who've been in maybe, I can't say a similar situation as Zoe, but some type of threatening situation that they themselves felt and they somehow got out of it or escaped it. But when they looked back on that situation, I'm sure they looked on it as maybe thinking, what could I have done differently? If this happens to me again, how will I respond to it next time? Right. What would I do differently that would make me feel safer or ensure that it doesn't happen, something doesn't go terribly wrong next time, right? right. The reason I think Zoe brought this to light to me, she's within a mile of her house, taking back a red box movie on the way to a church meeting mm -hmm. in a decent neighborhood in Dallas. And she's just looking forward to what's to come. Yes. If this could happen to her at that place at that time, it can happen to anybody. Right. So it's naive to think, well, I don't have to worry about that. I live in a better neighborhood or I won't do this or I it could happen to anybody. Yeah, you can go take a self-defense class and I hope you do, but you're not going to remember everything in that self-defense class three years down the road. Or you may not be in a position like Zoe wasn't. If she was in her car and she was getting pushed to the passenger side, she wasn't necessarily in a place Correct. to use self-defense tactics. That's my point. You, you, there's going to be things that come up that don't mentally prepare you for how you're going to react. This is something somebody can do every single day of their life to mentally prepare themselves to manage a situation like this. So I have an example. I was in Florida and I will say that somehow... <sighs> Homeless people in Florida are very brazen. They will. Well, I think specifically, let's talk, let, let's give our listeners a little bit of baseline here. Okay. Downtown That's Fort Lauderdale, very heavy, drug infested. The, the homeless people you're talking about, because I know the story you're going here, drugs are a major, major issue. And they kind of create these zombie like creatures that are homeless. That's what you're talking about. Well, so yes, go from there. But they will come up to your car and actually knock on your car window 
while you're at a stoplight and try to get you to roll your window down, right? And when I'm by myself without Psy, I feel very uncomfortable. And when I have to- I actually to, prohibited you from walking or going on runs by yourself there. Right. And it's very, it was very rare that I ever had to go around pretty much anywhere in Florida without Psy with me because we're always together. There was a time when I had to stop and get gas and it was not in a very ideal area of the Fort Lauderdale location. And a man started to come up to me and I could tell he wasn't well kept. He, I knew what he was going to do. He was going to be asking me for money because I saw him going around to other men asking for money. But you don't know what other things he might be willing to do. I don't know what other kind of things he might willing, be willing to do. I knew because of my surroundings that the man two pumps down from my car was about to finish up with his transaction. He was actually preparing to pull the pump out of his car and he was one of the only other people around. And I didn't know who might've been inside, if they were looking outside or not. And as soon as the- Okay, but let's let's frame this because I know where you're headed and I want okay. people to understand what's happening. <laughs> you don't want people to judge me too badly? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, because I, I, I agree with what you did, but I want people to understand your mindset at the time is, it was dark too, if I remember correct. It was yes. early evening, but it was dark. Mm -hmm. You're at a shady gas station. The only other person in the parking lot is getting ready to leave. And now you're being approached by this individual who looks like they're possibly impaired on something. Yes. And probably of the criminal nature. Absolutely. Okay. And as he began to approach. And you're a smoking hot woman at the pump. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but as he began to approach, I he was probably 20 feet away. I immediately went on my guard before this other gentleman could get into his car. And I pretty much started reprimanding this guy. Loudly. <laughs> Loudly. Yes, I said, if you are about to ask me for money, just go away. Don't even think about it. And I started with this loud reprimand so that this other man could turn and look and realize that somebody was approaching me that I did not feel comfortable with. And I continued my reprimand of this man. And he immediately put his hands up and started to backpedal away, but did not approach any further. And I was not going to give him any opportunity to, in the very least, ask for a dime from me because who knows where else that could where have went. Where it would have gone. Exactly. And I think that's what I wanted to frame with this. Had nothing to do with the money. No. You got aggressive and you flipped the table on him very quick and you got into his OODA loop where he realized, ooh, this, and you would probably kick him in the neck. So I think he got that sense. And that is a perfect example. This has nothing to do with homeless people. It has nothing to do with giving money to a homeless person. This has to do with a single female, at least at the time, you're by yourself, right? very vulnerable, feeling very threatened. And because I know you run these scenarios through your head constantly, like I, I, I will do. catch it's you planning to unhealthy. kill people. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll, we'll be sitting at a bar sometimes and I'm like, babe, stop. You just killed half the people at the bar. <laughs> you're like, yeah, but they look like they're doing do something. You have no idea. Right. But I think there is something to take away from that is before you found yourself cornered or in a position or trying to get out of a position, you saw it coming and you cut it off. Right. I would so not important. allow myself to become vulnerable in any sense of the word. Right. And at the end of the day, what this whole OODA loop theory is, is you're constantly training your mind by creating these scenarios in your head of your everyday life. As I'm driving around, I see this, I see that. How would I react if this happened? For parents, 
how would you react if you saw something happening to one of your children? Mm -hmm. And you see these little incidents where maybe somebody approaches one of your kids and you see it from a distance or the next day you see somebody approach your wife or you see somebody approach your husband or you're by yourself at the gas pump. Mm -hmm. And I hope people who are listening put themselves in the same position you were at the gas pump and think, well, how would I respond to that? Right. And here's the part that you think people are going to hate you. Here's where I'll go one step above you. Oh, please do. There's a lot of people out there who would feel bad for the homeless person who looks like they just need a buck, but you're a female by yourself in a dark parking lot with potentially nobody else to help you. Yeah. That is not the time to give to charity. It isn't victim blaming by saying, hey, uh, you probably allowed this to go a little bit too far. So by the time you figured out you were in the situation, it was too late to change it. That's not victim blaming. That is critical thinking to get people to open their mind that there are things you can do to help prevent these situations. And that's not what I'm saying with Zoe. I'm saying just there's so many other scenarios we could get into as touched as I was by this case. And I'm, I've seen a lot of shit in my career. This is one of those cases that really got me. You and I talked about this the other night. Like it Mm -hmm. was tough for me to figure out like, I don't know if I want to even tell this story. Right. I'm not being critical of what Zoe did or didn't do. What I'm doing is I want to challenge people to think is there something that could have happened earlier on that maybe would have saved Zoe's life? And that's a conversation that needs to happen. That's not right. victim blaming. It's if this happens to somebody else, I don't want to tell the story again. And from what I understand about Zoe, the very little that I do, she was a very happy, upbeat, very life is beautiful girl. Extremely compassionate. And I think that a lot of children are raised that way right now. And I think that purely because of the nature of our professions is one of the only reasons actually that our children heard so much negativity of all of the bad things that are out there in the world that we just saw every day because we were just constantly aware of everything. Judge me all you want. If you're safe, I don't care. But if we we could let people know there is that out there and you you need a plan when you're going places. You you need to think about the potential of something bad happening to you and how you're going to respond to that and how you make good out of it and how you survive. Well, and as a parent, you need to have these conversations with your children mm-hmm. and have them regurgitate that back to make sure that there is this understanding. And, you know, I, I think there's a healthy balance of not being so extreme with this that it just runs your life, but at the same time being plugged in enough that you feel very comfortable. Hey, in this certain situation, I may not come out alive, but I know I'm prepared to give it my best shot. Right. And I think that's the takeaway from this case. Well, and I wonder if Zoe were to have been seen as struggling, would that have changed the the outcome of kidnapping for her? Well, and would it have pushed the tattoo artist to intervene? Right. When you listen to his interview, it's actually kind of sad because I think he feels a lot of guilt. He sees this happening. He's not 100% sure that it's nefarious. It appears that way, but he's on the fence. If he saw her struggling and fighting, would that have been enough to push him over the edge? And if he just simply started yelling, is that enough for Antonio to run away? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's so many what ifs. And that's where this isn't victim blaming. It's critical thinking of, hey, could this have played out a hundred different ways? Or just to walk up to the car Yes. Quickly and say, are you okay? Right. Is everything kosher here? And if any of these ways play out with Zoe not being raped and killed that day, it's worth the conversation because maybe that'll help somebody else. Right. And that's the takeaway from this episode. And I think there are citizens every day who witness things happen that they're leery of, that something just doesn't seem right. And your intuition is probably spot on. Trust that instinct. 
to the Hastings family, I hope we did a little bit of justice. And to the uh, the Instagram page, love it. Keep the art coming. You'll, when yeah. you see the birds, you'll totally be into it. Mm-hmm. Can't wait. Well, thank you for sharing Zoe's story. I know this was a hard one for you today. Yeah. Next week. Join us next week for Small Town Girl. Stay safe, socialites. Socialites.